Commander Shepard has been recovered. The Lazarus Project will proceed as planned. Welcome to the Lazarus Project Podcast. This is episode 10. This is a special episode. Uh, today we're going to be talking to Mac Walters, the writer of Mass Effects 2 and 3. Uh, this is a Mass Effect podcast discussing its characters, lore, theory, and opinion. The podcast is recording and live in the Poppy 54 Gaming Discord server, so you can come join us there to listen to the raw, unedited version. And all the details you can find can be found in the show notes. My name's Tim, best known as Ploppy54, and joining me on the panel today is Manning. How's it going, everyone? And Craig. What's up? So, no news in this episode. We're going to go straight into it, and uh, we'll have a quick wrap-up at the end. So, let's dive right in. Today's guest is a legend within the Mass Effect community. Joining Bioware in 2003 as a writer on Jade Empire, he would go on to become a lead writer of both Mass Effect 2 and 3, as well as working on Anthem and being a creative director for Andromeda. In 2013, he was also nominated for a BAFTA award, writing for Mass Effect 3, as well as writing the comic series uh, Mass Effect Redemption. Uh, this is all before returning to be project manager for the Mass Effect Legendary Edition. I am, of course, talking about the one and only Mac Walters. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great, great intro, by the way. Thank you. Very succinct. <laughs> Very clear. <laughs> Love it. Mass Effect 2 is my favorite game out of the, the trilogy, but it was a it was a bit of a leap from Mass Effect 1 mm. to Mass Effect 2. I mean, so how did you balance the the gameplay and and what kind of you know the story versus gameplay and what kind of challenges did you face? Well, yeah, that's that's a great question. I, I mean, secretly, I will tell you, uh, two's you know my favorite as well. But um, although interestingly, I have all these different perspectives on it as well. Like one is probably more near and dear to my heart from a development standpoint because you know just the we were creating this new IP. It was everything about the team and bringing it about um, for the first time that was just so innovative and, um, you know, just felt like we were kind of on a high wire act the whole time trying to figure out where we were headed. And, and there was that sort of uh, tension as we were, you know, you're creating something and you just don't know if people are going to love it or not. That was exhilarating. But um, as a final product, too, is, is incredible. And uh, I have a lot of fond memories of working on that as well. The transition from one to two. I was, you know, that was really interesting um, in the sense that we came up with the concept of the sort of dirty dozen, which it was before it became the dirty 10 <laughs> plus two in DLC. And uh, this sort of idea of the suicide mission, that that was actually pretty early in sort of discussions of what we wanted to do with Mass Effect 2. And so uh, just in that, you can see that the story and the plot and narrative are really starting to drive sort of the direction of the product right off the bat. That said, um, you know, we had no delusions about some of the, uh, let's call it the clunkiness of some of the systems and features in Mass Effect 1. And we knew that we wanted to Im improve those. And a lot of times it's, you know, it's not 
as simple as, hey, we're starting a new project. Here's the 10 things we're going to do. A lot of times it's more of an exploration of how do we improve X? How do we improve Y? Right. And then people will sort of run off and and try new things. And the great thing with two was and the reason I think that we see such a, you know, uh, a bigger leap between one and two and then that you see between two and three is that. Um, you know, there was a lot of things in one that we just never really achieved. And a lot of that was because we're, you know, first time on a new engine, first time new team, first time new IP, you're just figuring everything out, right? And so ultimately at the end, you have to bring it all together. Now that we had that underneath us and, you know, we understood the engine, our tools were a little bit more robust and mature and the team certainly knew each other a little bit better. It afforded us that freedom to really explore certain things like we did with the combat and uh, really sort of pushing that along. And I think, you know, ultimately, when I look at the combat specifically, uh, you know, we had wanted it to be an action RPG in the truest sense. And, you know, there weren't a lot of um, things we could point to like that, certainly in the shooter space at back in the day. And um, we intentionally went, and I think it was more near the end of one where we started to bring on people and staff who had more experience in the shooter space. And then we really wanted to just let them run with it in, in two. And that's why you start to see some of these big evolutions, you know, whether it's with heat sinks and, you know, and, and people think, you know, oh, is that an easy decision? It's like, no, lots of debate on the team. As, many, as much debate as there was in the, in the community about, you know, switching to heat sinks and things like that. Um, we had those debates internally, but ultimately we would, you know, we want to go where the fun was. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was a, an explorative adventure. The interesting thing was though with, with two is we ended up, you know, um on a much shorter timeline as well um than one you know one had taken four and a half years and two was just over two to to get done and so there was a lot of rapid decision making where we kind of found something we liked and went with it and just and kept going sort of thing and didn't look back and ultimately obviously i guess that worked as much as i love all the games like the there's a pretty big difference like from one feels more like a traditional quote-unquote rpg yep. whereas two feels more like an action game with rpg elements was that something purposefully chose to like make it more sellable or i don't know if that's the right word but i think you know what i mean it wasn't really to uh, appeal to a, a broader audience i think what we found was we were trying to do two things in mass effect one which was bring in this action element and still be an rpg and what we discovered was they fight each other a lot right um and so as we went forward with the franchise it was clear that we had to sort of double down on certain things if we really wanted to execute on what we imagined you know the gameplay to be and certainly on the gameplay side we just had to back away from some of those things that are traditionally rpg and focus more on the action and put that first and foremost and you know i think that's just it was more of an evolution than a uh, you know just an evolution towards let's really you know improve because bioware hadn't really done action before that you know everything was either turn-based or um you know um uh you know our old isometric games and things like that it, it this was us really sort of flexing new muscles for the first time and really learning how to do that and we decided if we're going to do it we should really double down on it and then um it was about finding that line where um you know you haven't taken stripped away so much of the rpg that you feel like you're missing something um and you know if you're an rpg um 
lover you, you probably felt like two was was too light on some of those elements and there's still people to this day i know when legendary edition came out there's a lot of debates like no no i love one that's the that's the only one i love you know or it's the one it's my favorite because of uh, usually because of a lot of those rpg elements um and you know it's interesting the one thing that i would say is you know we've had this conversation in hindsight it's like what would two and three had looked like had we gone the other way and said you know what maybe we're not good at this action stuff and let's just turn this into a, a full-on rpg and go two and three and you know um we it certainly could have ended up that way right there was no predestined plan you know or something about oh you've got to you've got to do action to sell more units they got to say it just was i think for us when we were playing the game what we were enjoying about it, it's like no we want more of this how do we get there Okay. I think three has a, a nice balance, doesn't it? Between one being heavy RPG mm -hmm. and then it was stripped back for two and then you kind of brought them both together for 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 Mass Effect three. Yeah. Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that statement. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I'm first and foremost I'm gonna out myself as the world's number one Kai Lang simp. And <laughs> Like, I have a tattoo of him. But my question is, I don't know if you had anything to do with the comics or novels or anything, but he's such an interesting and well-fleshed-out character in the Expanded Universe. Like, mm -hmm. however you feel about him, he's just legitimately interesting. Was there ever a like talks or discussion to make him more of a focus because otherwise if you only know him from just the third game he's literally just like what my wife charitably calls anime keanu reeves right <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and i think i think um so the the where he, i believe uh, someone could could fact check me on this but i believe where he first appeared was in drew's novel um, um, when we were uh, following the exploits of, I think, Anderson, I think uh, we saw Kai Lang in there. And that's, that's we always wanted to, you know, we, I always find, and we all agreed with this, which was, if you're going to do something that's not in the game specifically, it's a tie-in, it's expanded universe, let's try to find ways to incorporate that into the game at some point, right? Like uh, we did that with Farron in, in um, Redemption, uh, bringing him into one of the DLCs, and you know i just find there's much more it we think about it more it ends up feeling more to your point like it feels like uh, a more well-balanced um character in that regards because we can explore more facets with them and uh for kyling specifically i i remember there was a lot more of kyling in three and i can't remember truth be told why those got cut uh probably just for clarity and and time and all the rest of it uh, and when I say a lot more, it wasn't like you could, you know, there was a whole Kai Lang mission, but there was a few more appearances with Kai Lang at some point uh, as we were, you know, fleshing out the story and, and the main plot. And they they kind of got whittled down a little bit. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that's the beauty of that expanded universe. I could totally see where in the future someone could do a whole comic on Kai Lang, right? Uh, why not? With, um, with Kai Lang? Was there any? Because I know there's been there's always been talk of of, of because he was like, introduced late on in the game. Would it, would there been any um, thought about bringing like a uh, a character from Mass Effect Two from uh, the Cerberus ship? So somebody that you mm -hmm. like Jacob for uh, for example, right? But rather than making Jacob 
uh, a good guy in three, keeping right. him that he stayed with Cerberus, and then then you had to you know like the Kylan character. So you had that kind of dynamic between mm. the the main character and was there anything like that ever discussed, or was it not something that was? I don't think so. I mean, the hard part is um, with a lot of the characters, of course, you have to remember what happens is we release the characters, especially the ones that are, um, you know, uh, on the side of the protagonist, right on the side of Shepard as they're going through. Um, not everyone loves every character, right? That's why we do them the way we do. We want people to fall in love with some of the characters, but they don't have to fall in love with all. But that said, there's always those who fall in love with a character, right? And if we make major pivots on those characters between games, uh, I think we've, in general, we've we've kind of tried to be careful with that because, um, you know, a lot of people um, really didn't like the fact that, you know, you couldn't really romance, you know, Liara um, or um, Ash or Caden, depending on who you chose in two, because, but even though that was intentional on our part, we wanted to sort of have this sort of middle act where they were distant and doing their own thing. And then in the third act, if you stayed true, you actually got different um, sort of uh, relationship options with them. If you had stayed true through two with Ash and Caden and, and Liara, but even that sort of limited change, like that's not them switching allegiances and becoming evil or anything, even that, we, we saw a lot of, you know, people just go, oh, I can't believe you did that. You know, like, how, how could you change that? Right. And it, people become very invested in the characters, rightfully so. Um, and especially because it's all wrapped up in their shepherd and their story. Um, so, yeah, just it's about ultimately, you know, whether we had conversations about it, perhaps um, not specifically that I remember about Jacob, but, um, you know, uh, generally that's where the conversation would stop though. It's just like, yeah, you know, we know the fans of that character are not going to abide by that if we go too far. Was there ever any talk or discussion in Mass Effect 3 of, because in the Citadel DLC, Rex can come back. Was there ever any talk in the base game of having um jack or miranda come back as squad mates because i'm just saying it's just mm. those are two in my opinion of the most interesting relationships but those are the only two relationships that if you stick with in the third game your shepherd goes to bed alone before chrono station right yeah yeah um 100 there was a talk of of doing that um Ultimately, it just it became really challenging. So um, what a lot of people may not realize is just how big Mass Effect 3 really is uh, under the hood. Um, if you actually look at things like lines of dialogue or the number of assets, which I did recently when we when we were working on Legendary Edition, I believe, you know, it's it's on par with this, uh, you know, size wise and just asset wise and things like that of the other two games combined. Right. There's a ton of stuff in there. It doesn't play like it necessarily if you play it once. It's just a very wide game um, that has all of these options that, of course, you know, that's on us. We we decided to do a suicide mission where everyone could live or die in Mass Effect 2 was a great idea. And we, we knew that we would pay that price one day. And that price was when we did Mass Effect 3. And that's why it became such a <laughs> wide game. But then ultimately you're left with all these is like, well, it just feels like this is right, but we can't do everything. We can't have everyone a squad mate. We can't, you know, like, especially when we know, don't know if they're, you know, technically alive or technically dead or anything like that. Like, it's just starting to put a, all this effort and emphasis on a maybe, right? Um, and, you know, ultimately, 
in the in the sort of full expanded we had all the time in the world version of Mass Effect 3 it'd be great to bring everyone back in some in some form uh, in the way that you remember them from two and ultimately well the best you know I, th I think we did a honestly a really good job of bringing folks back and making sure that they felt important with um the level of importance they had in the previous games but yeah there were always those uh, sophie's choices that we had to make it, it must have been such a mammoth task and obviously the extra dialogue voice you know lines that you've got to record and yep. you know yeah it must have been huge to try and bring all those those ends together and tie oh, yeah. and, together and as well and, as you did and also think about them on a regular basis, like just because there's so many threads and so many different ways that things can work out and have it all make sense, no matter which path you take. Like if you look at the number of actual choice points, both, you know, coming into the game and the ones you can make in the game, it's, you know, it, it gets up into like the millions of millions, right? Um, like I think our, our lead designer at one point actually <laughs> did the math on it, like how many actual choices are in there and permutations, you know, and some of them are obviously very slight but it just gets into this like great spaghetti of narrative that's out there and and i don't know that any, I, I would one one thing would be great we don't have this tele telemetry but i always thought it'd be great if if somebody could just get an ai to play every possible version and 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 see how many there actually are but also see if they actually all do work because i guarantee there are there are permutations that have just never been played just you know wow. to this day Oh, I'd, I'd believe it. I've done, I think, something like 45 playthroughs, and I still find new things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, Do you still play? Um, yeah, so I'll. this is my little, uh, I guess, dirty secret. I have rarely, if ever, played a game that I've shipped, um, mostly because in in the build-up to ship, you, you've probably played that game hundreds of times right or permutations of that game or parts of that game hundreds of times so there's that you kind of get a bit of fatigue with it secondly um as good as the games are um it's really hard to not just see the flaws or the things that we didn't fix or the things that we couldn't do so it just a kind of <laughs> this constant painful reminder of well, you didn't get that done did you um and it wasn't until legendary edition that i actually went back and started replaying it was my job i had to go back and you know it's like well, we've got to make some decisions here and you know enough time had passed that it was actually enjoyable to go back and do that again but even that had limits where i was just like yeah you know um yeah uh, let's just fix this stuff <laughs> and 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 get this out the door i don't want to play it a million more times and and be reminded because even then there were things with the legendary edition that we wanted to fix that we knew we weren't going to be able to to do so again more painful reminders uh at least as a developer you know well that's completely fair i remember right in anticipation of the legendary edition i'd done a full playthrough of the original trilogy mm -hmm. and then the legendary edition came out and i started it and i played for seven hours and was like i literally just did this why am i playing it again <laughs> yeah. yeah but hopefully it was improved so you know speaking of how much you know especially when it comes to time um mm. like when you're when you're carrying so many characters over to so many different games you know carrying mm -hmm. miranda and jack over and you have to limit things a little bit mm -hmm. some characters did get more screen time and sort of found to have a more prominent role mm -hmm. like garris and tally in mass effect one they seemed to have a bit of a smaller role but then you go into mass effect two and it feels like they've had so much more emphasis put on them they've got like a romance option and everything yep was 
was that like a reaction to like a fan response or reception mm -hmm. from their characters in Mass Effect 1? Yeah, I'd say so, uh, for sure some of that is in in response to uh, fan reaction. Like when people like, you know, honestly, when I wrote Garrison Mass Effect 1, uh, it never, for whatever reason, never even crossed my mind to think of him as a romance option. It was like the buddy cop scenario, right? Even if it's Femshep, it's still the buddy cop scenario, right? Uh, we, we joked about that all the time. And then, you know, you release the game and, and there's this, you know, not a majority, but a, still a, a vocal outcry of like, when do we get to romance Garrus, right? Um, and the same for Tally, right? And so um, as much as we can make that possible, I think that was, that was uh, you know, something that we wanted to be able to achieve. Uh, on Garrus, you know, maybe I'm a little guilty. I was the lead writer on two and he was my character. So maybe that's why he felt like he got a little bit more <laughs> screen time at two. Uh, that yeah. wasn't intentional. We were trying to be fair and equitable with everyone. I think some of that also... Um, you know, is also, uh, if I'm being honest, because I've heard this before, which is some of it is also the carry forward, right? You know, when, and one of the things we had to really consider in, in two was we created, you know, what, six characters that were pretty compelling outside of Shepard, um, six main characters that were pretty compelling in one. And now we were asking ourselves to create 12, right? And we we're like, and make them all meaningful and make them all, you know, as great as the other ones. And that's why we eventually said, no, we should include some of the original cast in here because that's a, the, the task is going to be too high, uh, uh, too hard to, to achieve. But then we did get a sense that for certainly people who play the originals, it wasn't necessarily even always that, you know, Tally or Garrus had, um, you know, more screen time per se, but you had more of a connection already, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like yeah. when you go to the bar and three of your friends are there and three new people are there, you might spend the same time together, but you're going to feel differently about, you know, spending the time with the people you know already, right? It, it did uh, feel yeah. like you formed a deeper connection with them. Though, yes, in, in, in exactly. 100%. And, and, and part of that's also us as writers, because we, we have all that to uh, play on, right? We can play on choices. We can tap into that massive, you know, data set of, oh, what did the player do before? And look at trying to use some of those, which then all of a sudden makes it feel even more personal than it uh, and personalized than um, perhaps the new characters you're meeting. In Grunt's recruitment mission in Mass Effect 2, was it ever an option to bring, to make it so you could pick Okir over Grunt? Just because personally in like the 30 seconds you talk with him, I feel like Okir is a really interesting character and I wouldn't mind spending 40 hours with him. Yeah, you know, um, I was trying to, something, when, when I saw that question, I thought about it because it's like, that sounds really familiar. And I can't say uh, for certain that, that that was a conversation, but I do think part of the um, intention was to really sort of sell you on Okir and then do the more bait and switch, right? Um, and say, oh, this is what you got and it's even better. Um, but that's sometimes the risk you run of making a really sort of interesting character who isn't the one you're going <laughs> to side with is that people yeah. are always going to be like, why not that one? I really like them because again, not everybody resonates with every character and they resonate with other ones sort of thing. So again, I don't, I don't remember if we actually debated it or discussed it, but um, you know, it certainly felt like it was part of some discussion or some conversations that we had back in the day. Okay. But like, like I said, it's just like, I love grunt. It's yep. just, I also would love a version of Mass Effect yep. 2 where I could have Okir. <laughs> just talking a little bit about um, how developed the characters are in Mass Effect 2. I think the loyalty missions mm. are a big part of that. Mm. Um, what, what was the process of writing those loyalty missions like? Yeah, that's a great question. So 
Yeah, and you know, I I was going back through some of my notes uh, for a different interview. I think during some of the anniversaries we had um, um, during um, Legendary Edition on you know some of our development, especially specifically on Mass Effect Two, and um, I think I was I don't know where the actual inception for loyalty missions really came from, but I do remember us having a lot of conversations about how people really enjoyed some of the smaller little. Uh, tiny missions that you could do for people like Rex or Garrus or whatever on, um, on Mass Effect 1. They like that you could go get the armor or, you know, yeah. help Rex with this little thing or help Garrus with this, you know, problem he's having or this decision he wants to make. And so we kind of wanted to lean into that. Um, interesting thing was the loyalty missions were meant to be, they are generally smaller or shorter than the acquisition missions or the the other ones, but they they were meant to be like little short things that we did. Of mm. course, in true Bioware fashion, they got much bigger and much more. Um involved in that but i think um the other thing that we ended up doubling down on at one point was we said look this game mass effect 2 specifically is about the characters like no game like oh, there's always characters in our game but this was about the team it was about the characters mm -hmm. and we realized that in order for you to really connect again with at the time 12 and then 10 you know characters and have at least have some sort of sense that you feel anything for any of them we, we, we realized we really wanted to um, devote some time to them. The other thing that um, I, and I remember this was a big thing that I was pitching for is I really wanted a mission where uh, I could be guaranteed that one of the squad mates would be with me because whenever we write dialogue, banter dialogue, especially um, mm -hmm. we write it, you know, here are the six options or in Mass Effect 2, here are the 12 options that you can have. And here are the 12 responses to each of those options that you could have. And because of that, you can, can guess it tends to be fairly generic, right? Like, you know, it's like, oh, sometimes it's like if Miranda and Jack are in the, in the, in the party together, their response to each other will be a little bit more snippy or something like that. But it, it's not really specific. You're not learning a ton about any individual character. So there was a real um, push to have these missions where we could guarantee that someone was with you. And then that banter could be much more focused on that person, right? And, and the interesting thing is it's it's very much like, a, you know, what you see in, in, a, in a Last of Us style game where the two characters are always, are mostly present together and they can, you, you the relationship builds over the course of the game. And that's what people really love because you can have these moments in between cutscene and in between gameplay where you're still developing, you know, relationship between the, the two characters. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was also a big impetus for us in, in developing them. I thought that room out there was the rest of the world. I'd pound and yell, never did any good. We knew that Mass Effect 2 is gonna be the darker middle act, right? And so a lot of the critical path and even some of the acquisition missions, they tended to be just a bit darker or a little bit more serious, let's say. Let's just say it's serious for now. Mm -hmm. And we wanted an opportunity where we have, you know, meaningful missions, but could kind of, you know, just have their own flavor, you know, just to give you a bit of a breath, give you a bit of a different different take on it. And then we would wrap those around, of course, the personality of whoever it was you were you were working with. And so that was the other one of the other key things that was a consideration, I think, when we were doing the loyalty missions was just to give you that opportunity to do something that didn't feel like it was necessarily saving the universe, although we I think we did a good job of tying it in and making loyalty feel important to the overall mission. Um, yeah. but also just that opportunity where it's like, yeah, I'm just going to go hang out with this person because I want to hang out with this person. Is that sort of yeah. like the same thing where like in Garrus's loyalty mission, you can just go full renegade and let them take the shot right off the bat, or you can let Lantar Sedonis say his piece about why he did what he did. What do you want from me, Shepard? What would you do if someone betrayed you? 
I'm not sure. But I wouldn't let it change me. I would have said the same thing before it happened to me. It's not too late. You don't have to go through with this. Who's going to bring Sedonis to justice if I don't? Nobody else knows what he's done. Nobody else cares. I don't see any other Yeah, options. and I think a lot of that was also a consideration from the original game, which was, you know, Garrus was this this uh, character who, you know, was kind of tough and rugged on the outside, but was clearly internally conflicted with a lot of things, right? Like, was struggling with, um, you know, how, you know, wanted to be sort of like hardline, but didn't, wasn't really convicted and, and, and convinced himself. And so even in one, you're already a shepherd kind of giving him advice on how he should, you know, deal with his dad or whatever it was. I can't remember specifically, but, you know, and how he should um, behave in that sort of moral spectrum. And so I think that was part of, you know, just if we're going to do something with Garrus, let's see that through, but let's see it in action, not just words now. And I think that's where, you know, to me, a lot of the expression in his loyalty mission was, is like, how far can we actually push Garrus towards this because that that's kind of the relationship which is garris obviously idolizes shepherd um looks up to them and uh you know will start to lean whatever way shepherd thinks they should lean okay. uh, so it's part of their story part of their journey hello everyone i'm mac walters and you're listening to the lazarus project podcast It was kind of confirmed about the dark energy plot originally being an idea, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and so what, what was it that kind of caused you to diverge from that and, and choose, you know, the, the, the story or the, the journey, I guess, that we ended up with? Yeah. So interesting fact, and I don't know if this is actually has been put out there yet or if it has. I don't know if I remember seeing it. But one of the things we did with Mass Effect was, you know, that we knew that the there was the cycle, the Reaper cycle. We knew that they had a purpose and a reason for coming back. But for quite a while, um, and it didn't persist throughout the entire three series, but certainly through the first and part of the second game, we actually maintained sort of competing theories of what that was. And uh, Dark Energy was one of them. But we we didn't want to commit to anyone yet because we thought uh, there's a couple of reasons. One, it's more mysterious if you don't know, right? Like we just answer, you know, game one it's like yep, this is why the reapers are this is why everything happens and this is exactly it and it's like oh okay you know might be good but what if you don't like it it might turn you off right so i actually purposely maintain multiple sort of threads and we would gut check against those so if we were changing the main sort of story or plot we'd say does it still work with the multiple sort of theories that we have um you know and, and a big one um you know was the the whole idea of sort of singularity and um you know ai sort of kind of reaching a certain point where you know it was going to surpass us and over overtake us and and then you know do what it does to us um but uh ultimately as far as why we specifically moved away from it i actually don't know again i think i feel like it was one of those evolutions where um you know we we planted some seeds we didn't necessarily feel like they were leading in the specific right direction that we wanted to. And then when we, when it came time to actually write Mass Effect 3 and we needed, you know, it's like, okay, now's the time. Now we've got to answer it. Um, I just remember, I mean, I definitely remember us having so many meetings around um, the reasons and uh, the motivations and, uh, you know, what was actually happening in the universe. And 
You know, I, I suspect it was just a matter of it was the one that that most of us sort of aligned around. I suppose if you were to track it back, would it have started with um, Legion, do you think? Like that whole thing mm. about giving the Geth a new, um, I don't know if fresh coat of paint, but like developing yep. them in a whole different way. And then that kind of led you in that direction, do you think? I think so. And there was there was actually, I mean, keep in mind, um, you know, there was uh, often um, things influencing us culturally at the time as well, the things that we would gravitate towards. Um, you mm. know, I think the whole topic of AI, you know, it's crazy how how much it's front and center of everything we're talking about today. Um, but I think even back then, you know, like call it, um, you know, 2010-ish, um, there was already that sort of burbling up of, of, oh, some of this is starting to become a reality. And what does this actually mean um, for us? Not not just the people in the game, but what does it mean for us? And I think that started to influence us and start to shape some of our storytelling as we were going through there, for sure. Were the Geth ever written to be sympathetic or was it supposed to be more like morally ambiguous mm. uh, that's a good question so like it's interesting because again that's a that's another evolution so in the first game um you know they were just we we, we said we need our stormtroopers i mean we need something that we can mow down mercilessly and you don't have to think about it we didn't want moral ambiguity at all in that it's just like nope you you kill these things period full stop right um because and, and the reason that was intentional was because we didn't want to uh, burden the player with um, having to uh, figure out the political system or, you know, who's good, who's bad. Is it is it kind of great? And then but once that's established, then now we're like, oh, OK, well, now we can introduce new enemies to take that place. Now, what do we do with the Geth? Right. And then specifically on did we ever write them to be sympathetic? Well, I mean, I would definitely say that um, Legion was written to provide a perspective that would allow you to empathize with the Geth, 100% for sure. Um, and then from that point on, we certainly wanted to to keep them, I think probably in the realm more like, you know, the Rachni, which was, you know, is this something that's good or evil, misunderstood, not quite sure, you know? Um, because again, certainly for me, and I've answered this question a lot, um, when you talk about um, you know your antagonists in any way in in storytelling, I'm much more a fan of the those who are great. You know the Arias, the elusive men of the world, because it's just more interesting, right? It's more interesting if if you're not sure if you know they're fully evil or fully good. Um, there are times where it's nice just to have a clear cut: you're the good guy, you're the bad guy. But a lot of times, um, you know, especially in a story that is as expansive as ours having that ambiguity is is much more fun to play with and i think i i would hope much more enjoyable to experience as well no i mean like i 100 percent agree i'm just saying it's like to me in my personal opinion 
I don't mm. understand how anyone can play the Geth server mission on Rannoch and come away thinking the Quarians are anything other than genocidal war criminals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, but it, I think that's the, you know, I think that's the other interesting thing about it is that, you know, we see this in great storytelling where it's like you sympathize with a certain group or person and then you realize it's like, oh, wow, you do terrible things sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. And it changes your perspective of it. I mean, um, uh you know, Game of Thrones is rife with that. You know, you start off hating everybody and by the you know, middle of the book, it's the flip. You're just like, oh, I love all the people I hated and, you know, I'm apathetic towards all the people I liked. And yeah. And then there's a Starbucks cup at the <laughs> very end. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this one's going to sound kind of random because I know it's not Dragon Age and I know it's not Mass Effect mm -hmm. or anything else, but I love Jade Empire. Mm. Was there ever talk or discussion about a sequel because i know the game's kind of cliche and it's very predictable but it still has a cult following yeah um up until literally the day i left we were talking about it and you know in some in some vein especially i would say after the success of the legendary edition um i've been trying to convince people to not just do a remaster but actually a re-envisioning like a proper reboot of the series um for a while as had other people at the studio uh, I agree, you know, I think um, there's a lot about the original, which, you know, should just stay in the past. Let's leave it, leave it there. But at the yeah, same time, there's a lot of things. Change. Yeah, there's a lot of things <laughs> that about it. it. You know, it was still a well thought out IP. It was still a rich world with so much more to explore and so much more to do. And because of the nature of it, like, you know, there's so much we could have, we could have brought that forward to, you know, modern times. You know, that was one of the pitches I remember I gave at one point. It's like, imagine if all that magic carried forward and it was modern time. So now we've got, you know, um, ancient uh, Chinese magic in a, in a kind of Harry Potter-esque nature in our, in our time sort of thing. Like, that sounds like a lot of fun. Why don't we do that? So uh, I, I'm not there anymore, but my I, I sort of hope that one day somebody goes, yeah, we're going to do it. And they do it. Okay. Well, first, I need to play the first one then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crossing all my fingers. There you go. This this might come across as more of just a fun question then, I guess. But how big of a fan of Dungeons and Dragons are you? And just the, the team in general, I guess, while you were working there. And do do you know if there was much inspiration there from D&D &D in, in, in Dragon Age and how that was created and developed? Yeah. Um, well, I, I can't speak specifically to how much, but um, I think obviously it varies. I would say I was um, uh, a middling fan of D&D &D myself. I was always a fan of it, but had never really participated uh, on a lengthy scale. But I knew people who had been in campaigns for years, maybe even decades that were at the company. Definitely mm -hmm. huge fans there. And uh, I will tell you this story. It wasn't D&D, &D, but it was a D&D &D like game. I'm, <laughs> this is sad. I was an only child, so keep this in mind. Um, we went on a trip um, with school to Toronto, which is a big center. And they had, we went to this sort of, it was like a games workshop type, type store. And uh, I found this, uh, it was like a post-apocalyptic D&D-esque style game. And I was like, this sounds Amazing. incredible. I bought it, brought it back home with me. It was like one of the few things I bought on the trip. And I could literally find no one to play with me. <laughs> and so I proceeded to create 
multiple characters, DM'd it, um, you know, the cats were involved. Um, I even had my mom involved. She didn't know she was involved, but she was in there. And I would just play everything. Um, it didn't last too long, but I mean, I was always enthralled with the role-playing experience and and all the trappings around it. And so when, of course, when I could discover games like The Bard's Tale or anything like that, that sort of did all the work for me behind the scenes, but let me just now go experience that and play it. Um, mm -hmm. I was a huge fan of that, but then I never really got back into, you know, proper tabletop or into the, the IP of that. Um, although I have passed it on to my, to my kids, they, they, they like to play and create characters all the time and get minis and stuff like that. So have you seen that there's actually a mass effect fan D and D style, um, podcast out there? No, I don't think I have. Um, they're called Mass Effect Adventum, and Mark okay. Gear actually appears from time to time. Oh, does he? That is Vorcher, yeah. Good for him. Good for him. <laughs> That's awesome. As a Vorcher. I guess, That's uh, awesome. What's your favorite class? I think I have to, does, he wear the, does he wear the, the mask? <laughs> oh, no. I don't think he appears on camera for it, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Okay. Because I remember he had a mask at one point. Sorry, I missed the question. What's the question? Oh, I just said, what's your favorite class, and why is it Vanguard? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, Vanguard became everyone's favorite in two because, you know, all of a sudden you could just close the gap on people and have so much fun with that. Uh, but no, I was I was actually infiltrator. Uh, I like to sneak. I like to snipe. That's my that's my uh, my go. -to. I, is that why? So were you were the reason why on Tuchanka specifically, if you play as an infiltrator, when you turn invisible, the Krogan yell at you and say, like you or if you use an smg they say use a real man's weapon <laughs> i'd like to say that was for me i bet you that was john dunbarrow though uh so i think that was his i think that was his mission so being a writer mm -hmm. if um i think you use you penned a, a book between the end of mass effect 3 and uh, andromeda yep what obviously that's going to be completely different to writing mm. uh, a video game yeah. um so is there like a is it harder or is it what's what's the key differences between the two yeah that's a great question this is similar to you know the graphic novels i did you know dozens of those as well it is um it is easier there's just no way to put it, it it's definitely easier to write you know um when you don't have to uh really factor in player agency right player agency is a really hard thing to do well in a story right and letting people tell their own or feel like they're telling their own story is super challenging, right? Because, you know, you want to author it, you want to have this, these emotional moments and, you know, peak at the right time. But when you don't know what the player is going to do, you don't know what they were just doing before the conversation, very challenging versus writing. And I, I want to make it sound, it was easy. All writing is hard. You know, it's, it has its challenges, but as a, as a comparative, much easier when you can just focus on the singular narrative. The one thing that I would say is harder though, um, more so with the novel than the graphic novels is I really missed the collaborative nature of writing for games because so much of, you know, any kind of creative endeavor is you work at it for a bit and you kind of get frustrated or you, you're like, I don't know if this is the right thing. And then you got to kind of put it down and, and walk away from it. But, you know, when you're working in video games, it's fantastic because you can go work with, you can go talk to other people, share your idea. They come back at you with something that's just, you know, even better than what you were thinking. And you incorporate that in versus, uh, and there's a bit of that with the graphic novel as well, because you'd be working with artists and editors and things like that. So a little bit more of that 
but in the novel, it was just kind of like, yeah, you're just, you know, typical what you'd imagine writers do just alone in a room, <laughs> you know, hoping your ideas are good. And then one day your writer comes back to you and, you know, gives you your feedback and stuff like that. So that was the one thing that I found more, I guess, more challenging and, and, and less enjoyable about the process. But otherwise, it was certainly easier. Do you ever find it interesting, like when you're writing a novel versus mm. a video game, like say in your novel, x y and z are going to happen versus as in a video game the player can choose like mm. so say in garris's loyalty mission if you wrote a book about that you could pick if garris takes the shot or if he doesn't do you find it more challenging or interesting i guess as a better word to figure out like when you're writing for multiple things at the same time versus as mm. if it's in a book it's going to be this yeah yeah i mean it's definitely it's a lot more challenging to do because it's not just about you know you have to come up with you know multiple options that are interesting you have to come up with multiple options that are interesting that also don't break the character or break the immersion that you already have or the expectation you have for both the player character but any you know characters you're interacting with right um so you know it's always about that fine line of oh did i did i push garris too far in that or did i push shepherd too far in that and 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 often we did and we'd have to pull back in and and you know rewrite and do that so it's it's definitely um uh, again it is one of the hardest things to do and do well i think when you uh, in the vein and in the way that we we did it right where we really gave you as much choice as you did you know i i was always amazed how m often i heard fans refer to shepherd as my shepherd i don't remember hearing that it's like my shepherd they they take ownership of that and a lot of it is because I believe of the choices that we allowed them to take um, and the fact that we were able to keep that character feeling consistent for that player, regardless of what choices they took. Right. Um, which, you know, it, it, it might not seem like a challenge, but in, in hindsight, like when I look back on it, it's like, I, I don't know that I would ever make a game like that knowingly if I would make a game like that again. Just no, I a hundred percent agree because my shepherd is the only one who's allowed to romance Jack. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned speaking, um, like working collaboratively, you, you miss that kind of interaction. Mm. With the rise of things like uh, AI and chat GPT and stuff, yeah. um, do you think that you, you'll incorporate that more in your writing or is it is it mm. something that actually might make you as a writer obsolete in the future? Oh, yeah, I love these questions. Um, I'm a huge fan, just as a side note, I'm a huge, like, you know, amateur futurist. I, I I get a lot of my inspiration actually from the real world and what's happening throughout. I'm often inspired by nonfiction and and what's happening in reality. And certainly what's happening with AI right now is is mind blowing, even as someone who's followed it and, and hoped for some of these things to happen, right? As far as it replacing me, I don't know. I don't think I'm too concerned about it necessarily replacing me. A lot of what I've seen is that um, uh, the people it will potentially replace first are those who are just refuse to adopt in any way straight you know at all like if they just ignore it and don't even think it about as, as a viable tool or a resource or something like that those people may well get replaced you know in certain realms just because it does provide a huge advantage i believe for uh the creative process any tool does right anything that helps you springboard or leapfrog whether it's you know talking to your team or or talking to chat gpt and bouncing ideas or whatever off it's moving the creative process forward. Creative process, a lot of people think of it as like, oh, I have a great idea. It's like, 
the great idea is just the start. And then you need to have a thousand more ideas that follow that, right? And if it's you doing it on your own, I can be a, a, a slog, a really slow process. So any tool that I think that can sort of, uh, you know, move you forward. Another great one, and I'll be very careful when I talk about this one is uh, mid-journey. And I know that there's some concerns about how mid-journey has gone about, you know, getting to the point where it has. And I'm full agreement. I don't think it was the most ethical or, or um, uh, best way of actually handling it. But as somebody who can't draw but has lots of visions in their head of the worlds that they want to create and the things that they want to do it's been this incredible tool where i you know i'm not using it to um promote anything or or do anything but i, I you know it's like i have a, a, an image of something and then i can see it and then that inspires me to think about it in a different way and then i write about it more right um so it, it's it's fascinating and i do think it's going to change how we make video games. It's, it might not change, you know, ultimately um, how good those games are. I think what one of the biggest benefits we'll probably see is seeing you know, smaller teams that maybe were traditionally more indie being able to do things that feel a little bit more AAA, right? And I think that's exciting because some of my favorite games of the last few years have been indie games. And do you, do you see like the games, like storytelling games, do you see that? getting to a point where we can possibly like choose the RN ending to films and that mm. sort of thing, or is it, it going forward? Do you think it, you know, it, it's, it's just going to start solely stick with, with the, with games themselves rather than kind of seep out into other media and that. Oh, uh, no, I, I could definitely, it's a really good point. I could definitely see something like that in, in film. Like I, the debate will be whether this is good or not, but, um, I'll give you my futurist sort of version of this. I can totally see a world five to 10 years from now where you literally come home and instead of selecting from a list of, you know, um, movies or shows on Netflix or whatever your thing of choice is, you just are like, entertain me, hit the entertain me button and you watch something that is literally made for you as you sit there and watch it live action. Uh, I know that seems crazy, but I've seen enough of the different pieces of that technology already in play today that I could see that happening. Now, again, is it good? Did it just, was it, was it, you know, just like maybe a level above doom scrolling at night right on your phone? Maybe. Um, but could we get there? Yeah, for sure. To sure, be, it'll be fair, Facebook. it'll be Facebook that does that. <laughs> They've got all the information. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah. to be fair, my Alexa will hear me mention something in conversation and then I'll get ads for it forever yeah. on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. But YouTube will still give me ads in a different language that I don't understand for something I don't want. <laughs> Interesting. There you go. I'm I'm am an aspiring writer myself, where I want to mm. be in, in in the future at some point. Do you have any advice for any other aspiring writers? Or advice for aspiring writers? I mean, it's the same that I I think I would give for um, anyone who wants to get into games or into you know, in, especially nowadays with the tools that are available, which is um, don't wait uh, for an opportunity to to write or create. It, you know, you have what you you need there. Just start doing it um, because the hardest process I have found personally as a writer is finishing. Right? It's you know we can all generally start something. You know, blank page syndrome is a thing, but a lot of times we can. But it's not until you actually finish it, and even if the only thing you do is finish it for yourself, that's a huge step. You, it will, if you, you know, let's say your goal is to write 
a novella um, and you write that novella, you finish it. And when I say finish it, I mean, it's like it's gone through a couple rounds in your head of iteration, stuff like that, but you're done. Like as good as you think you're going to get it, you're already, you know, 90% farther than most people will ever get in writing because a lot of people just don't, they don't take it to the end. And, you know, you get the, I'll iterate on this chapter for, you know, whatever, but I never get past that. Right. Um, it's not fun. It's not exciting. It's not, it's not, maybe not the best advice, you know, from a, so, oh, I was hoping, you know, there's something easier, but that's so true it, though. That's, yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you're wanting to promote anything that you're wanting to, uh, to get out there to share with the world? Uh, nothing, nothing, um, you know, specific, obviously everyone knows I'm, I'm no longer a buyer. I'm very, I'm very excited about the future, whether it's, you know, the things we, we, we've been talking about, especially as it pertains to uh, interactive uh, narrative and storytelling. I really think, you know, seeing what, you know, Naughty Dog's done with The Last of Us and it's, you know, um, transition to TV and seeing the the merging of uh, technologies, you know, and the adoption of our tech, our tools and tech into film and TV I'm just really excited about the future of interactive storytelling because I feel like we are just scratching the surface of where we can get to with it. Like I think some of the stories that we're going to see in in game specifically are going to be some of the you know in the next five ten years are going to be the best stories period out there. And uh, I think for a long time, you know, games have tried to emulate other mediums and tried to get there and and maybe stumbled a bit because, you know, they're still games and we have to make them gamey. But I think we're kind of getting past that now. And I'm really excited to see what that next generation looks like, where we actually create interactive uh, stories that are the premier way to experience those those narratives. I know I can say from firsthand experience that I got an Oculus Rift just to play Alien Isolation on VR. Yeah. And my heart literally like i died the first time i saw a jet of steam <laughs> there you go thank you ever so much for for joining us we all really appreciate it um you're taking your time out to uh to speak to us yeah yeah oh, i appreciate you i know it was a little delay there but i yeah thanks for having me and uh yeah yeah thank Great you for conversation. a bit longer as well i appreciate it happy to yeah, thank um, you if anybody yeah, wants to you. follow you how did they do they uh Oh, good point. Yeah, I, uh, I guess on um, Twitter at Mac Walters lives is probably the best way at this point. Um, you know, I'd say LinkedIn, but that's pretty boring. We won't go into that. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you ever so much. Appreciate it. All right, thank, thank you, you so sir. much. Have a great weekend. One thing I did want to um, mention was: Did you find it interesting, Manning, that Kai Leng had extra stuff in Mass Effect Three? Oh, I bet you was well annoyed, wasn't you? And I kind of always, part of me always thought that just because of how, not to say he's a main character, but just how involved he is in the novels and comics. And how uninvolved he is in Mass Effect 3. Precisely. I'm not going to lie, I did think of him a whole new way when they said, when they put him in 3, it was more about having a reference to his involvement in the books and stuff, though, rather than like... You know, having a character because when I first played Mass Effect Three, I saw it as, oh, they're just throwing this guy in because they need somebody to do things for the elusive man. Oh, look, and there's other stuff to make him look more interesting and better. But it's kind of the other way around, isn't it? It's like he's developed in the books and comics and created in it, but in the game, it was just he 
they wanted a character from the comics and books to go into the game. Yeah, and I I mean, like, how many people to this day, like 11 years after the game came out, still think that he exists? They Just like someone created a space ninja in five minutes just because they needed a rival for Shepard. Yeah. I never thought about the way that uh, he answered the, the Jacob question of, of having Jacob stay with Cerberus and then that be replaced for Kylang Sea. You've got that dynamic and that. I never actually thought about the people that actually do like Jacob and how much of a, of a gut punch that would be if he's one of your favorite characters and then they automatically make him the bad guy in three. So I liked, you know, that they actually thought of balancing it that way that, yeah, all right, many people don't like a certain character, but there are always going to be people that do. So you, you've got to cater to both sides. Although I do kind of like Manning's argument that it would be quite interesting if you had ties to whoever was on the opposing side. Yeah. I suppose it would probably, to to keep everybody happy, it would have to be like an NPC, wouldn't it? It just ends up being like Kirihi, just so you're not too attached. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly. Actually, that would, that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Because you could, you could have like a, you could invite her up into the cabin in two. You couldn't take her out on missions or anything. She was just your yeoman. And she was that excited about being handpicked by the elusive man. That why wouldn't she then just stay with Cerberus and all right, she's not going to be the space ninja, but No, I know, but they could... could have used her as like she could have been like a spy on the Citadel. And then yeah. like they could have used her maybe a little bit more in three. Like Shepard could invite her to the new Normandy and then she could like plant bugs on the ship when Shepard's not looking, and that's how the elusive man's getting his intel on what the Normandy's doing, you know, that sort of thing. And then you could eventually find out and have to go try to find her to confront her. Yeah, that could have worked. Another thing he did say, though, was about um, Garrus and Tully, which I thought was interesting, like, that they that they sort of just naturally thought, like, I, I know it's kind of, a, I guess, a basic reason, but, like, they thought, we need this many companions for this suicide mission, so let's bring some of these characters in. like. It it seemed like such as it's it's it, I guess it's like the first thing that you would think of actually as as like a reason to include them. But it's nice to I don't know. It was it was kind of a it was a simple answer, but it was nice to know that like they didn't just go oh right this is a popular character, but like I don't know. It was it was interesting. It was it was nice to know that it wasn't just our fans really like this character, so they put them in kind of thing. It just felt right. Yeah, I meant to ask him when that question all came up uh, that I really enjoyed that they put, you know, uh, having Garrison Tally get together. If you don't romance either of them, I thought that was a, that was a beautiful little touch. Such yeah, such a shame. We didn't bring that up as well. Yeah, um, to a lesser extent, Ken and Gabby as well. Yeah. It's little you... things like that. I think that, that expand the world and it, it makes things that makes it not just, that everything's revolving around you and it's not you, your decisions all the time that, that affect the world. I know, and it makes them feel, it makes all the, not just them, but like everyone on the ship feel like real, like real people and not just 
NPCs you're forced to go talk to after every mission. Like how the characters will like roam around the ship and they'll be in different places and they'll be talking to different people. It just like it makes it really feel like an actual ship. Yeah. Do you think Jade Empire 2 will actually happen, Manning? Because they were obviously discussing it kind of recently. Uh, yeah. I'm not holding my breath, but I'd love it. I think it will. At least I hope I lo- I'd love it. Like you say, the first one had a, a cult following. And if it's something that they were still talking about up until the point that, that uh, he left the company, I think it's something that they'll come down to it. You know, further down the line, they'll think, right, what, what, what do we need to do? That Well, he did say that it was because of the success of Legendary Edition. So to me, that sounds like he was also implying they'd remaster the first game. That Even if that's all me. they did, I'd be fine with it. But if they were to do a sequel, a remaster would also be a great way of reintroducing it to people who hadn't played it. Yeah, precisely, because the game's 18 years old now. I mean, like, there's a lot of people who weren't even probably alive when it first came out. Well, I would have only been, like, five. (laughs) (laughs) What was his... What what did he say exactly about ChatGDP and the rise of AI, do you guys remember? You embrace it and you have to adapt. Yes. Yeah, I did think it was funny how he was sort of saying without saying the controls are best ending. I am sovereign, and this station is mine. So I want to say a massive thank you to Mac Walters for taking his time out to chat with us. It was it was a proper honor. I uh, I don't know about you guys, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and the time went so quick. Yeah, it's crazy how long we managed to keep him for. I know, and it's even more crazy that he even agreed to spend longer than he'd originally initially wanted to. And uh, all it leaves me to say, really, is uh, thank you for listening. Uh, my name's Tim, uh, or uh, at Ploppy54 on Twitter. Uh, you can find my co-host, uh, Craig, is... At Craig and his Mac on Twitter. And Manning is... Uh, at that Cerberus guy, all one word, at on Twitter. And you can actually see our immediate reaction after we had the interview. Uh, there's been a link to the video on the show notes, so go check that out as well. And all our contact information, uh, as well as the Discord, is in the show notes too. So, yeah, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.